Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Melina Lee Williams Haas. I deeply appreciate you listening and taking the time to hang out with me. I will be addressing issues of life, the universe, and everything that are often bogged down and mired in shame and grief, and talk about how they can be repackaged to be useful and gorgeous and fucking awesome for you. So sit back and relax, or you know what? Sit up and freak out. However, you prefer to listen. Let's go. You know when the tea is so good that you just linger and linger over that first pot and then it becomes a second pot of tea and then it's 2 a.m. and you're like, damn, we're still talking? Well, that kind of happened with this episode. It's a two-parter. So sit back and relax or, or don't. Do what you want to do, but just keep in mind that part two will be coming next week. If you're someone who is curious about kink and BDSM but has no doggone idea where to start, I got you. First off, I'm the co-author of a book called Playing Well with Others, The Guide to Exploring, Navigating, and Discovering the Kink, Leather, and BDSM Relationships. You can find that on Amazon, and I'll put a link in the description. But let's say you want a more personal one-on-one interaction. I got you, fam. Go to thekinkdoula.com. It's T H E. K-I-N-K-D-O-U-L-A. You may be familiar with the concept of doulas from childbirth, but what about rebirthing yourself? What about going deep within and uncovering the secrets and wondrous discoveries that maybe, just maybe, have been hiding from you or you've been hiding from yourself for a long time? You want to talk about your secret fetish, your kink, perhaps just you're curious about how to expand your mind a little bit more into becoming the person you truly want to be. Contact me at thekinkdoula.com and let's see who you can become. Today's episode was originally going to be a Facebook post, then it was going to be a TikTok. And then I was like, you know what, actually, I want to have a conversation. That is what the hell I want to do. So I have a very special guest on today, my friend Tanija. The reason that I have Tanija on today is that there was a discussion on Facebook. We were talking about that. What was I talking about? What was that post? Do you I remember? remember? I was posting about something and They just came up with a a response that really hit me in the gut. And basically it was about being submissive, looking for partners, having some janky shit go on and not letting that break your spirit to the point where you just throw up your hands and say, I'm out. And while I have had that impulse so many times (laughs) over the years, since 1995, when I worked up the guts to actually take what I was holding in my mind and heart to the real time, real world, real community. I've lost count. 
So I really wanted to talk about what it was like, a little bit about what it was like to be African-American slash black slash brown slash non-white person involved in alternative lifestyle communities. What happens when you do become discouraged looking for partners? And then what keeps you around? Why why don't you just throw up your hands in the air, waving like you just don't care until everyone to kiss it as you stroll the fuck out of the room? So I'd love to hear like a little bit as much as as you want to share about your journey, how you came into the community first and foremost, and then what keeps you here? Okay. So I think my journey is kind of a little like in the 5% or whatever, in that (laughs) I have always liked service. Mm-hmm. since I was a kid. I was the kid at family gatherings that would hop in the kitchen and be like, okay, who can I serve a plate to? Who can I tell where to sit? <laughs> who can I do all of these things with? And like, yeah. yeah. So I knew from a very young age that like, this was something that I wanted to have in my mm-hmm. life all the time. So the older I got and the more invested in actual historical things, like my pull into it was ancient Egypt stuff. Oh, Yeah. And so having classes that helped me discover that there were different classifications for whatever job that you wanted to do and how those were venerated and Mm -hmm. the rest of it. So I was like, okay, so this was an actual real thing. And nobody had explained to me that getting juicy off of brain stuff was a kink. I didn't know that. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, it's true. Yeah. I thought it was like a thing across the board that happened for everybody. I I had no idea about like the different headings or different identifications, nothing. So in my brain, I was just like, oh, okay. So finding a partner or to do this or whatever, it's going to be super easy because everybody thinks the way that I do because mm-hmm. it's just, and it's natural. I, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and I got involved in BDSM in a kind of like a, haha, a backdoor kind of way where I, <laughs> lol, <laughs> I took a bunch of bartending courses in college mm. and then got a bartending job at a BDSM. BSM club in Montreal to, <laughs> yeah, that's where I was living at the time, to just serve drinks and stuff at, at a play party. It was my yeah. first experience of anything. So I'm like, okay, cool. And I guess this is also, I guess, an example of how open I was with who I was with my friends because nobody even asked me, hey, have you ever done it? They just assumed because I was just very open with talking about like what is awesome to me and what is sexy and what is hot mm-hmm. or whatever. So nobody explained to me what I was going to see when I got there. So I was just like, (laughs) oh, okay. (laughs) So I'm 18 and I'm slinging drinks with like somebody who has a rope rigged, like this really cute lady to be like the disco ball. Like she had like little mirrors. Yeah, it was super nice. But walking into that after coming out of also my upbringing was very Christian and being like, oh, wow. Okay. So I got into there and that's happening. Yeah. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm doing this. And spent like did the the job for the whole night and was able to have the experience of people reading me and assuming where I identified. So a lot of people, Mm. this is what was my first time of like figuring out like, oh, this is how people in the scene probably see a lot of black women where without question, people were bringing me their subs on leashes and stuff and being like, yeah, you can like have them for like 15 minutes or whatever and not realizing that I'm 
not a top at all. Yeah. And having to explain that to people also without knowing the the proper language, knowing the protocol, knowing any of the etiquette. This is my first experience with anything of having to explain to a female dom, basically, who had given me like her three subs to just like help collect glasses and whatnot and noticed that I was super nervous anytime when she would like encourage me to tell them to do stuff. And then, yeah. (laughs) And then when I explained to her like, no, no, I, I don't, this is uncomfortable. I don't know how to deal with this because this is what I like doing. Like I like collecting and things. And she was like, Oh, and very immediately she, she told me like, this is rare. So you have to be careful with who you share this with was her advice to me. And I didn't understand. I was like, ah, wow, really interesting. Yeah. And so after that night, like a years go by where every time, like my, I've had partners before where they didn't understand the kind of dynamic that I wanted to go into. Now, that. did so, you, did ha- having worked at this party and being like, sort of like, uh, uh, okay, this is cool, but weird, but cool, but weird. Did you do any specific kink stuff within the scene as it existed then after that? Or did you just go back to your life? A bit of both. So I went back to my life and being the like nerd that I am, I was like, there has to be books. There has to be some explanation for what I saw (laughs) and what's going on. So I did my research and having done the bartending gig at that one club, I was able to ask the club owner like, hey, can I like, come to other nights to just see what's going on. And then they explained to me what a munch was. So I was like, okay, so it isn't just this weird, like CD, oh, do this in secret type of thing, blah, blah. And (laughs) yeah, so I didn't, at the time, I didn't have time to go to munches because I was in school. I was also working a regular job and I was in theater. Like all of my time was just pressed. So getting into actual kink dialogue. And I think this is probably true for some other people where before FetLife, there Mm -hmm. was this like, yeah, AOL online and MSN Messenger, whatever. But there was this app called IMVU where you make like your little (laughs) virtual person. My God, I forgot. Yeah. And there was like rooms and stuff that you could like go into and talk to people and stuff. This is how I got involved in all of that. That's amazing. Yeah. So what happened with that was like, I also RP basically kind of like fanfic, but it's basically, it doesn't have to be off of fanfic. You just make a story with another person. And I had three (laughs) partners that I wrote with like at a constant Mm -hmm. who were just like, hey, let's like bring our story to IMVU. So we did. And then for me, I was like this IMVU had so many rooms and I was like, hey, there has to be a room that can explain to me like what I'm still like interested in, like Mm -hmm. writing. And that's when I started to go to IMVU and then I got on FetLife via IMVU. And that's so my first long term I guess, dynamic. I found my top on IMVU. (laughs) Yeah. And that dynamic lasted for three and a half years. Holy shit. Yeah. Okay. That's so amazing to me. It was also really good for me as an introvert because it was like meeting them and interacting with them at first online gave me more power to 
Mm-hmm. tell them whatever I wanted to tell them. And also it gave me what I used to do all the time online was engage in conversation with people over a long period of time, maybe two to three months yeah. before I sent them a, a, like an actual picture of my face to find out like, oh, you're actually black. So most of the time <laughs> people, yeah, people would engage in conversation with me, not knowing I was black until I gave them a picture and they were just like, I like I was sneaky with it too. I'd give them a picture of like me and my other like out kinky friend who's a white girl and they would be like oh you're her and I'm like nah I'm the girl next to her and then they'd be like wait you're black yeah and how did that work for you super annoying at first and but also I find that part of their reaction led me to I guess some form of entrapment so if I'm used to basically people being like oh my god you're black I didn't know that you were black and then having their averse reactions all the time The one time I meet somebody who's okay with it, it's like, okay, I'm going to start talking to this person. Like for me, so the majority of what you were discovering was it was a problem. Yes. Not necessarily a problem. It ruined things for me in that once they found out that I was black, they didn't believe that I was a sub. They automatically transferred like, oh, you have to be, you're the one calling the shots and stuff. Like this is just (sighs) a temporary thing or you're a switch where I'm just like, no, this is like, and it would make them even more uncomfortable when I would use like, no, I'm actually like a slave. And they would, there is so what? much to unfucking pack, pack right I know. here <laughs> in this shit. I can't, I was like, oh my God. Okay. Okay. First of all. Okay. Second. Okay. Wait, eighth of all. Okay. Hold yeah. I accidentally had a situation where I was flirting with someone who I did not reveal my ethnicity to. And it was mid-length story short. It was when I was still working for Wells Fargo. And I had a customer who I had a long-term project with. I mean, this guy had five accounts that were a mess and no one was fixing it. And I took personal responsibility. I'm like, I am going to fix this because you have been trying to get this shit fixed for a year and a half. And this is ridiculous. And so to get him out of the mess, it involved me having to speak to him weekly and check in with a bunch of shit. So we wound up actually like after the first three weeks, you're like, so how, you know, how you just start talking about other shit. And at one point I asked him, he had charges like across America in a week. And I was like, oh, were you on a trip? And he's like, nah, it was a work thing. And I was like, it was a work thing. Were you driving across country for work? What do you do? And he's like, well, uh, and this was in, and you have to keep in mind, this was in like 1990. Four ninety? No, 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 no. 95. I had already moved to the Bay area. And so, so he said, well, I'm a bounty hunter. Oh, wow. And I said, what? Like Boba Fett? <laughs> he just started <laughs> crying, laughing. Cause that was the first thing. Cause this was before like dog, the bounty hunter and everything else. Right. So it wasn't in the sort of common parlance. And so that was the first thing that popped to my mind. And so he immediately starts laughing and he's like, you're the first person who's made that connection. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like, you're clearly hanging out with the wrong people. I guess he wasn't hanging out with people who were Star Wars fans. I don't know. Anyway, so that sort of broke open the conversation. We started chatting and then, you know, talked about like, you know, movies and television and food and wine and this and this and that. And then, you know, we got through his problem and he said, you know, I really would love to send you a thank you gift. And I said, well, that's actually not allowed. But, you know, you as a bounty hunter, I'm sure have access to all sorts of information. If you were to (laughs) stalk me and I gave you permission to do so, it wouldn't be a crime. So we had this whole flirty thing. 
thing. And he eventually like sent me a bottle of wine and it was very lovely. And then like six months into this, he finally like worked up the nerve. I I could tell he sort of wanted to be like, you know, well, I'm going to be in the Bay area. Let's have dinner. But I was like, I'm going to make you work for it. So he finally worked up the nerve. And I said, I think that would be lovely. Let's, you know, have dinner. And so a couple of weeks went by, we were planning that. And then he said something like, you know, I have built up a picture of you in my mind over the past few months. Ah, yes. (laughs) And that was when I said, oh my gosh, I have never told him. Like I had never said enough, not deliberately, but it just, you know, it just never had come up anything that would have specified my racial background or my ethnicity. And so I said, okay, I would love to hear So he starts, you know, he's like, I, I, you know, he says, from your voice, I think that you're probably, you know, middle height. He says, probably full figured, you know, brown eyes. And I'm like, you're doing real good. And then he's like, dark hair. And I was like, yes, yes. And he goes like olive skin. I'm like, darker. (laughs) He's like, like Latina. And I was like, "Mm, darker. (laughs) And he's like, oh, oh. And there was this long pause. And I had this unique sensation of the longer the pause went on, the clammier my skin got. Yeah. And I just felt this sinking in my stomach. Yeah. And it just, the silence became so painful after like 45 seconds or something. I finally said, so you, you understand I am, I am black. And he said, I had no idea. And I said, oh, it sounds like that actually matters to you. And he's like, "Uh, no, no, no. I just, and I was like, "Mm -hmm." got a thrown real fast and never heard from him again. Yeah. I definitely understand those feels a lot. God, it was so, it's very cringy and so uh, cringy for my experience of it. It's also weird because I would have like Skype calls or whatever with people that I was trying to vet to be like, okay, let me do this thing. Mm -hmm. And the silence was always broken by the quote of even online. And like, I hate this even online getting the quote of, but you're so educated and me being like, Ah! what does that have to do? Yeah. What does that have to do? You're just a fucking racist. You're just a racist. Exactly. And then having that realization that for the past three months, I've been talking to a a fucking racist. racist. Yeah. I mean, the so, thing is that what I want to know, I want to know, like in the back, like, what did the racists feel like at that point? Do they start checking themselves? Like, has any racist person had the blind taste test and failed and then gone back and reexamined their shit? Does that happen? I, what is happening with them? If you are a converted racist, please send a message to the perverted negress at gmail.com. P-H-E-R-V-E-R-T-E-D-N-E-G-R-E-S-S.com. Send me a fucking email. You can anonymize it, whatever. But I really want to hear. We need to hear from you. Yes, because most of the time when I got that kind of reaction, it was like, first of all, so glad that I never had this reaction face to face at oh, God. times because it would have been crazy dangerous because most of the men would react in a way where they would be like, no, that's impossible. Then ask for more proof, like for more pictures where like it gets close to hold up a newspaper with today's date on it to make sure it's like, uh, okay, guys, just, yeah, I'm what black. The and then then doing like their own these reactions were so bad their own like paper bag test which way they would just ask me okay so one of your parents has to be white because you're not that black and i'd be like wait a minute what what the fuck 
Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Where they're just like, well, you're brown. You're not black. And I'd be like, no, I'm I'm very black. My, both my parents are black. Like I'm black. Well, is one of your parents' parents white? No. So like trying to find that loophole in like white supremacy, where I was just oh like, oh God, God, for the past three or whatever months, this person is like very racist. And so they would either not talk to me or just get very upset and very mad and then accuse me of stringing them along and lying. And you're not real sub because you're dishonest and stuff where it was just like, I don't. Did you don't, ask? Did you on ask? Top of that, it's like, did you ask? And it's also, I'm very <sighs> sorry if you've made these assumptions based on A, my education and B, what I sound like, because that doesn't determine anybody's like what ethnicity or race. So to this day, I still do get the reaction of like, okay, so one of your parents has to be white where I'm just like, well, no, I'm very blackity black. Like I, I can't really like if you did they, I saw, mean, this is like, this is like the fight I had to have with people when Colin Powell was like, well, known and people like, oh, well, he's I'm like, no, he's just Jamaican. He's just a light skinned Jamaican dude. He's just light skinned yes. guy. He's just light skinned. Yeah. Look at his parents. They were light skinned. Everybody light skinned. It's light skinned family. So like, for me relax. to make people uncomfortable, I would then, I have now started telling people like, well, maybe down the lines some uh, white slave owner like buffed one of my uh, ancestors and this is why I'm this color now but I'm telling you right now both my parents are black so like <laughs> I mean we can't go back and trace all the rape but you know there you go right <laughs> it's the, the assumption is what kills me yeah. kills me dead I remember I saw this comedian years ago a Chinese comedian and he, he walked on stage this was at like the laugh factory or one of these you know back when you used to go to comedy clubs like every because yeah. you know, it was fun <laughs> Friday, it was cool Saturday, yeah, yeah 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 they would just be like please come in two drink minimum and it's free coming and my boyfriend and I went to see this comedian gets up Chinese guy just stands there looking at the audience for a minute and you know like if you just stand on stage and you don't say anything eventually the audience like starts to eat itself and doesn't know what to do yeah and so after like a minute he finally like looks he finally like grabs a mic and goes i just wanted to see y'all's reaction before i started talking and everyone's like <laughs> ah! Nice. <laughs> like a Chinese guy with a Southern accent, just, and I sat there going, Oh my God. And I feel like an asshole. Cause my mind was just blown. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it was yes. so great. What he does and his whole thing was he was like third or fourth generation Chinese. They had been living in Texas since like world war one or whatever. And like the stories that he had about just people being awful to him in every way possible in the South and in Texas and everything else. And I was just like, oh my God, that's amazing. So we all make those assumptions, yes. right? Like it was surprising to me to see someone who wasn't a white person because I just had so much of an attachment of Southerners either being black or white because that's how I came up. Yeah. You know, that's what I saw. And I'm like, oh no, there's everybody. I had that experience when I was like nine and I was visiting my family in Trinidad and this man who looked like David Suzuki spoke like my dad and I nearly cracked my dad. I was like, what? And he also knew, like, I could not hide my expression. He's like, yep. Yeah. That's what I sound like. Yeah. like what? <laughs> oh my God. So like, this is the thing I want to, I'm not letting racists off the hook, but I want to say that and there is an aspect of it, a familiarity. And for me, like if I meet someone who's not white and they have a New York accent, it doesn't phase me because I grew up in New York and because right. I saw people from every conceivable ethnic background and combination speaking English with a New York accent. Like that was just the default. Now you get outside of New York and then I start to have the sort of like, 
It's yeah. not familiar to me. I didn't grow up in it. So that would be that startling moment. You know, I would be as startled as you were if I heard someone, you know, a white person speaking with that accent, just like, whoa, 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 whoa. But are yeah. there people who aren't black living on these islands? Yes. Are they going to have the local accent? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the assumption is where we now to segue into the thing that gets my hair fucking straight up off the top of my head is the assumption that your ethnicity or your background informs your role in the dungeon. What yes. the fuck? So my experience within the community has been, now that I'm not in the community, it, I'm able to see that I've experienced trauma and it was very toxic for mm -hmm. the simple reason that where I live, literally no word of a lie, the only black person for the two years that I was in the community, two, two or three years that I was in that community. And they, everybody treated me like a diamond in the rough because it was like, she's very, again, intelligent black woman who is like identifies as a slave. Like we don't understand that. And we don't understand how she came about it. And so it was every time <laughs> that I went into any type of like munch type of situation, it always involved me having to retell my story of how I identified or why I identify the way that I do. And it's to the <sighs> point where like I could sit in at a munch and time it to be like, hey, they're gonna they're gonna ask me to say something or they're gonna introduce me to another person that is like, hey, this is the other person that I've met. And then being the only black person in a white community, you end up being tokenized against your consent. So anybody that spoke to me would definitely say, okay, yes, we're friends. And then they would put me up on a pedestal of like, I'm not racist or I'm very open to everybody's identity because I speak to Tanaja and this is what Tanaja looks like and this is how she identifies. And then it further oh compounded my dynamic because my partner at the time was a white man. So it was like a lot of having to fight through layers of just systemic racism and like very passive white supremacy because in Canada here, a lot of the white people in the community anyway are very much like, no, we we're not racist. We don't exclude or whatever when they actually do. And when you call yeah. them out on it and nobody wants to say it's always your problem, it's never their problem. So it was like, that's why I left the community, especially after uh, my last dynamic dissolved. There was no way that I was going to stay there at all, especially by myself with nobody who was help protect oh, me. Nobody wanted to help protect me. Everybody wanted to use some form of either my education, my identity, how I spoke with people, I was bilingual, wanted to use me as some sort of like tool. So I just left the community right. outright. But leaving yeah. the community outright didn't stop me from my identity because it's so ingrained in me. Not being a sub, not being a slave for me is, I can't fathom that. That's not a thing because it's, I identified this way before I even knew it had a name. Yeah. So yeah. the experiences that I've had, yes, they lean largely on the more negative side. It hasn't dissuaded me from pursuing a DS dynamic the mm -hmm. way that I need it and the way that I want it. Mm -hmm. Because my logic is I exist. I'm real. There has to be. There has <laughs> to be. <laughs> Some form of relationship or dynamic or person that is matchable for me. And then it's the also the added experience with my experience in this community in Canada is that like people 
if your identity changes, then people invalidate your like you're not really kinky because you started out as a sub and now you're what a top or now you're a switch. Yeah. So you're very you're you're looked down on every time that you switch. And so when I left initially, Like so growth is is something to, yeah. to reject and to scorn? Yes. How does that even yes. make sense? How it are you it's like when sense. you come into the scene, you're just learning. The whole point is you're there to figure your shit out and bounce your ideas and bounce yourself and bounce your stuff off of other people. That should be celebrated and elevated, not rejected. That doesn't make sense. So my experience of that is that is very open and accepted if you are a dom, top, daddy, sir, mistress. But if you're on the S type of the slash, you're, it's a very gatekeeper-y club that if you deviate from how you identified when you introduced yourself into that community, then you're not true. You're not the true way. It's not, you're not doing things right. You're different. That is so, it's so interesting because I ran into so much of folks who would assume that I was a particular role. Now, what's interesting is that there's a 50-50 split. There's a lot of the racist, well, she's black. She must be like the strong black woman dominant type. But there are as many people who will hit me with the like, oh, you're black. So therefore, you know, the slave yeah. thing. Right. Yeah. So there's that. So, but there's also this interesting if you come in and you're submissive and you're a woman because there are so many cisgender male subs disproportionate to the number of women who are interested in dominating cisgender male subs that there's this assumption like, oh, well, she just hasn't figured out she's a dumb yet. And so that happened to me more often than anything else. And I wonder if this is regional, if this is just the flavor of the predominant sort of vibe in the scene or what it is, because I'm sure that there's variations on all of these themes all over the world. Yeah, you know? I think maybe it's regional because yeah. uh, for, again, my experience was not that most of the cisgendered men that had a proclivity to like identify on the S type of the, the slash were switches. So mm, um, mm, it mm. was, they had an easier time, but for the very few scant people of color that I did meet within the scene at the time, they were either rope tops, mostly rope mm, as well. Rope okay. tops are just rope bunnies, but yeah. for service subs or service slaves or anything, anybody that identified as I did was super rare because also the way that I identify also plays out in my everyday life. Yeah. So people didn't understand how can you be kinky in your real life and not have people be like, oh my God, I know that you're kinky because you're doing this stuff and um, having... Because what you do has nothing to do with being kinky. Like yeah. anything can be kinky. What is wrong with people? My God. Yeah. So all of that experience kind of like helped me also build my interest in when I started doing my PhD, which was a mere fluke that actually worked. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, just my PhD. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah. 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 So PhD in sex and religion, which was like a little hilarious. Yeah. It's so, you know, it's, I'm so fascinated by the differences in region. I mean, and also, you know, coming up in the Bay Area, there were so many people who knew who were peers of or, or came up in the scene alongside Vi Johnson, whose book was thrown at my head by the first dominant. I was in training slash service to, for those who don't know, it's called To Love, To Obey, To Serve, Diary of an Old Guard Slave. And it was given to me as sort of like, you know, the textbook for, you know, this is a story of like a real original true with a capital T slave and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, wow. So one of the scions of the leather community is a black woman who identified as a slave. Fascinating data point. Let me just store that in my head. Then I read the book and I was like, oh, 
I am not a slave. <laughs> I was like, oh, honey, no, no, honey, no. I'm like sitting there at like four in the morning reading this shit. Like, girl, get out. Run. <laughs> Run. Run. You're yeah. Take your ass. The fuck. What the fuck is you doing? So people knew, you know, like people had a familiarity with that. So it wasn't, I wasn't breaking any, any barriers there, but I was breaking a huge barrier and saying, you know what, I'm going to put this book down and say maximum respect for what you went through, but that's not me. My assumption at the time being, you know, a little fresh baby sub was that meant I wasn't a slave. Now I was fortunate enough about a year or so later to actually meet Vi Johnson in person and like run up to her and be like, Vi, Vi Johnson, I'm Melina Williams. And she was like, I know who you are. And I'm like, I don't know why you know who I am, but okay. So anyway, I just, <laughs> I just wanted to tell you, thank you for your book because it essentially saved me from pouring myself into trying to be a slave when I'm absolutely fucking clearly not. And she like, just took a half a step back and looked at me and was like, okay, why don't you tell me why you think you're not a slave young lady? <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, you did all this and this and that. And I just was like, I would never do that. I would, you know, I would walk out before I would, but, but you know, I was like, I'd tell you to go fuck yourself blah, 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 and yada, yada. And she's like, well, that's actually, does it make you not a slave? That not, makes you yeah. the kind of slave that you are, you know? And she said, this book was my story. It's not a guide for how to live. And so we had this whole conversation and I was really struck by the fact that people for the first two years I was in the community have been very willing to explain to me why I was not a slave and why I was clearly not cut out for that. So I should just, you know, be a bottom and be happy with that side note, as though there's a hierarchy and a progression on top of that. Fucking if, which it is not a progression. Okay. It is not a hierarchy. There are people who identify as submissive. There are people identify as slaves or people identify as bottoms. And just, you know, for the general education, my differentiation is this. People who bottom generally are looking for a sensation. They're looking for an exchange of energy, maybe sexual energy, maybe kink energy, whatever that is, but they are not relinquishing their control. They are saying, this is what I want. And in in fact, the job of the bottom is to make sure that their wants, needs, and desires are clear so that the person they're playing with can get the gist of that, which is why I hate the term topping from the bottom. Because I'm like, that's the job of the bottom is to make sure that the topping is proper. Whereas a submissive is saying, okay, I'm going to give you my power. There's the option that I will take it back. There's the option that it might be part-time, but you are submitting to maybe a scene or a situation or a person. And then slavery has to do with an emotional, physical, spiritual ownership, right? Like these are different things. It's not a fucking hierarchy. There's not a progression here. If the idea of someone owning you makes your skin crawl, then you're not going to want to be a slave. That's it. Yeah. And that was a thing that I ran into a lot in the community where I was also saying the same thing. So there were subs that were coming to me in this kind of like starry eyed. Oh, I can't wait like to learn enough to be like you. And I'd be like, well, don't say that. That's not what you're doing is not like better or like worse than what I'm doing. It's just that I live a life, uh, a different life than you. I grew up differently than you. I find my found my way here differently than you. This is how I identify. It doesn't make that me better than you at all. But like, we're still on the same kind of like under the same umbrella. We just have yeah. like different ways of playing under that umbrella. And a yeah. lot of mostly older women that came to me with like, oh, you're, you're so much better than me. When I came back with that kind of reaction, I would see like the light bulb go off and be like, so this is somebody definitely has told you for the longest time. Yes. That someone said someone fucked you up. 
Yeah. And having somebody who identified on that side of the slash tell them that like they're not bad or wrong or less than for identifying the way that they were was also telling to me to see the difference in Mm -hmm. confidence in their the way that they did whatever they did Mm -hmm. after hearing that where it was like oh okay because my experience most of the time were and this is just probably with the topsers or doms or whatever that I was Mm -hmm. in contact with were just highly intimidated by my questioning because when I'm vetting people, I would ask why constantly. And I'm also, I find myself like I'm a really good people reader. So I would read people and ask why, 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 where then people would then append to the fact that like, I guess I can't like bamboozle this girl because she's quote unquote smart. So I can't like outsmart her. Oh no. What do I do? (sighs) So let her. Yeah. So most of my my search for me has been a little bit exhausting because at some point when I get comfortable enough with that other person, Mm -hmm. I then realize that they're still very intimidated by me. And like, I call it like, I'm still driving and I don't want to drive. So every time that I have to like remind people, I I'm not, I don't want to pick the car. I don't want to drive. Just, I want to sit in the seat, take me to where you need to take me. That's it. And people still, again, the reaction is very like, why? Why can't you drive? (laughs) You've been listening to All That and Mo. Thanks so much for spending your precious, precious time with me today. My podcast is produced by Cody Crabb. Theme music by Georg Friedrich Haas, as performed by Marcus Weiss. And I look forward to spending time with you again really soon.